All right, it's good to be here, and uh, thank you for braving. Is it really bad out there, the, 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 the traffic? All right. So you really wanted to be here. That's good. I, uh, I've never run a marathon, and that seems really horrible. You know what I mean? Like, doesn't that seem horrible? Like, if I were running a marathon, I'd be like, um, I would like finish probably the first half mile, and then I'm going to go to church, and then just come in. I'd be in church with my number, and just saying, yeah, I, I quit. Um, but it is really cool to be with you guys here. Um, and uh, and I, this is like, when I pulled up, last time I was here, there was scaffolding around the building. And um, the, Pastor Terry said that you guys were painting. And then when I pulled up, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the most epic paint job. Like, your church is really cool. You know what I mean? I get to visit a bunch of churches around the Barrie, but it's just aesthetically, your church is really cool. But here's what's really awesome is that you guys have unbelievable worship and leadership and transformational teaching that is working in people's lives and reaching mission. And so it's exciting to just honor to be here and connect with you. For those of you that are online, it's awesome to see you guys too. Um, you guys get to sit in front of your computer in your pajamas, you didn't brush your teeth, your hair is all stuck to the side. And we can all see you. We're actually watching you right now through your computer. So. Um, uh, so we're glad you're joining us online, and thank you for being part of. Everyone's like, everyone's online, like covering the little computer screen. Um, <laughs> we can't see you, but we're glad you're online and joining us. So thank you. Um, I wanted to share a little story uh, as a pastor. Um, uh, pastor Terry gets to do these things too, and I and I do as well. Uh, we get to do weddings, and it's one of the funnest things where you're standing. You actually have better seats than the parents because you're like standing right there with the couple, making the most important decisions of their life. And we get to do these weddings. And I was doing a wedding in San Jose. And after the wedding, I was at the church. I was finishing up with some last-minute work. Everyone was going off into the reception at another city nearby uh, in Sunnyvale. And so I'm like, eventually I hop in my car. I'll go over there and greet folks from the church and hang out. And so I did that. And on my way to that place, there was an accident. And you've been where you've pulled up, and you know, it's a ton of traffic, whatever. This is one of those things where the, tra the, the accident had just happened. Like, it had just happened in front of me. And it was significant. Four cars were involved. There were injuries. No fatalities, but there were significant injuries. And um, so I, I've trained myself when something happens to not, you know, deer in the headlights, but to actually respond. Because I feel like if there's something I can contribute, I'd like to. So I pulled over to the side of the road. I'm in my nice suit because it's my only suit, and it's my nice one. So I put my coat in the back, I took my tie, I tucked it inside my shirt, so you can imagine what I look like. I got my phone, and, and, I'm, and I'm running out there, my glasses, and I run out there. And they're like, good, come on, yeah, I'm running with another guy. And then, I'll, you know, the conversation's like, oh yeah, hey doctor, come on over here. And I'm like, what? why do you keep calling me a doctor? And so we're going to the next one. And so then we run, we run back to this other injured person. And, and he's like, doctor, come over. I said, you keep calling me Dr. White? He says, well, you look like one. <laughs> well, so for me, just so you know, I, I actually have a, a, a doctorate in, in like theology. Like, <laughs> not super helpful on the side of the road. So when I was getting my doctorate, my kids would say, my dad's becoming a doctor. Not the good kind that helps people the other kind, you know, the, the kind that talks too much. And their friends would be like, oh, yeah, I get it. No, that makes sense. So I'm running to the next one, and they're like, doctor, come over here. I'm like, stop calling me that. I'm not the good kind. And, uh, you know, I'm helping these people. And this one lady, she's hurt the most. 
And uh, she's calling and asking, and they're saying, oh, the doctor's going to come see you. And so I come over to the lady. <laughs> and, I'm, I'm, and she says to me, oh, doctor, I'm so glad you're here. I don't know what I would have done or if I'd have made it if a doctor weren't here. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't tell her I'm not a doctor now. What am I going to say? And so I'm like, you know, I don't want her to die because, you know. So I said, I looked at her, I said, ma'am, I'm not a doctor. And she goes, well, you look like one. <laughs> I've been told that, yes. And, and, she, and she says, well, what are you? And I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. And something changed at that moment in her heart. Like I could tell there was like a countenance change. Like there was something that assured her. And she said, would you, would you pray for me? And I'm like, that's about all I can do, yes. And that's, I, will, I will pray for you. And um, it was an interesting moment because as I you know, was finishing up and driving off to the reception and paramedics getting there. Thank you, doctor. I'm not the good kind. Um, uh, you know, I, I drove off and I thought that was the, one of the weirdest experiences. But it was uh, unusual that, that God would have uh, assigned that time and that place and the unusual and unlikely circumstance of the individual to somehow be a blessing, to somehow bring hope, to somehow bring a moment of prayer and encouragement at that time. Um, for an unlikely and unusual person. And I think God does this all the time. I'm finding over and over again as a, as, a, as a Christ follower, as a pastor, as a chaplain, as a leader in the Bay Area, that I'm recognizing, uh, come to this conclusion that when you fully embrace the idea of what it means to be a disciple, a follower, an imitator of Jesus that he takes unlikely and unusual people like you and I, and he does extraordinary and heroic work to accomplish his purposes and to build his kingdom. Let me just say that again. He takes unusual and unlikely people like you and me, you and me, and he does extraordinary heroic work to accomplish his purposes and build his kingdom. Throughout the Bible, that's what he did over and over again. <clears throat> you see the most disqualified, unlikely people. And if God were picking people through a for a special assignment that you and, I would, you and I wouldn't pick these people, you'd think he'd pick the strong or the smart or the experienced or the winners. But no, he picks the weak. He picks the simple. He picks the inexperienced. He picks what some might call the losers. God picks the regular, the uncommon, the unlikely. He picks you and he picks me. He picks us. Why? And this has been a fascinating thing as I've journeyed through the Bible. In fact, I would even submit to you that as your life gets disrupted, as things happen in your day, in your week, or in your season of life, that you're like, man, this seems really awkward. Something's broken. Something didn't go as planned. Something didn't work out as it was supposed to. And it's for a reason. And there's a much greater part for me to play in the design of God as I fully engage in his work and what he's designed for me to do. I believe scripture teaches that. All things, created or man-made, conspires with me to work in harmony to a common end for God's purposes. All things. It's very weird. And as I, I, I can't plan it, I can't think it through, I can't order my day as if something crazy is going to happen. I have to be in tune with what God's going to do, and then things happen. This whole thing about the Oakland A's, 
I realize there's not very many Oakland A's fans in here. I didn't plan on that. I never asked for a chaplaincy. What I asked for was, God, I'd like to, I'd like to build connections and relationships and influence in Oakland so I can help shape some of what's happening over there. Then baseball calls and says, would you be the guy? I'm like, what? And now I'm interacting. I, I meet with the visiting team, the umpires, and the players every Sunday. The umpires, they, all, they want to pray together. It's crazy. I didn't plan that. I didn't plan my journey even to the Bay Area. I didn't even really think of the Bay Area. But God navigated my, the conversations and the things and the circumstances in my own life that had me living right here for the past 22 years. That's how God works. And God takes unlikely and unusual people. And there's a story. So I'm reading through the Bible. I read through the Bible every year. And there's a story in the Old Testament. And I love Old Testament stories because they're kind of they're, they're crazy, actually. A little kooky. <laughs> and you're reading them. And you're like, wait, what? You know what I mean? You're like, God put it in there for a reason. So I've got to like, try to figure something out in here. Because I didn't write it, but it's in here. So I'm reading through Judges. And I come across this story where God brings these two regular guys like you and I, unlikely and unusual, brings them... Uh, they bring what they have, who they are, how God designed them to be, and God empowers them to fulfill his purposes and to build his kingdom. So uh, in your handout, you're, you have Judges chapter 3. And I'll give you a backdrop to Judges, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll uh, go into the passage. But let me pray for us first, because I want to pray before we go into the scriptures. Father, will you use your word as you've done throughout generations? Will you do it again today with the folks that are here at this hour and the folks that are with us online? that you will illuminate our eyes to see something that will be convicted, encouraged, um, challenged, will be, will be realigned, reconnected, that will be empowered through your word interacting in our lives. We pray that that happens with us today in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Judges chapter 3. Let me give you a backdrop. So I'll give you a historical narrative of Judges. So Judges is in the Bible. It's nestled kind of in this little pocket in the Bible. After Moses and the first five books, God gives the law. They wander in the desert. That whole thing goes on. And they, when, they, when it's a transfer of leadership at the very end of the first five books, Deuteronomy, first five books, there's a transfer of leadership from Moses to Joshua. And Joshua, in the book of Joshua, which is the next book, is called to bring the children of Israel into the promised land, to cross the Jordan into the promised land, and to conquer this area that God has designed for them. And so he goes in and he conquers most of it, but not all of it. And he does, he does what God's called him to do, but he leaves some pieces out. And what happens is that the children of Israel begin to intermarry and their, their religious system gets kind of messed up and they can begin to really lose their true north. And in, from the end of, Judges, end of Joshua going into the book of Judges, what happens is that the children of Israel completely have lost their way numerous times throughout that book and throughout this historical narrative. And what God does is he raises up unlikely and unusual people like you and I, regular people, what he called judges, men and women, to restore Israel back through their gift and talents and resources, to restore them back to what God has wanted them to be and to free Israel. And that's where we are in Judges. Because what happens again, the Israelites kind of fall away from God, and God raises up a judge. So Judges chapter 3, starting at verse 12, it says this, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. We'll jump to verse 15. It says, Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. 
Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, a Benjamite. And the Israelites sent him with a tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. And he was presented, he presented a tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now a tribute is like protection money. It's like a tax, like a protection money. Hey, we're still here, but here's this, so don't hurt us kind of thing. So he presents this tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And it says, who was a very fat man. I don't write the scriptures, I just read them. <laughs> Verse 18, after Ehud had presented the tribute... He sent on their way those who had carried it, but on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. And the king said to his ascendants, Leave us. And they all left. And Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of the palace. And he said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and he plunged it into the king's belly. Again, Old Testament, crazy stuff. Verse 22, even the handle sank in after the blade, and then his bowels discharged. Yikes. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Okay, sorry. Um, <laughs> verse 23, then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room, upper room behind him, and he locked them. And, he, and after he had gone, the servants to the king came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, well, the king, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. This is, is literally, this isn't the Bible, it's potty talk. He says, they waited to the point of embarrassment, which is super funny to me. Uh, they're like, uh, so you, want, uh, you knock, I'm not going to knock. Um, they waited to the point of embarrassment, but they didn't, uh, but when they did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. And there they saw their Lord, the king, had fallen dead on the floor. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possessions of the fords of Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. And at that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, and not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. What? Is that like a crazy story? Is that like, hey, kids, I want to read a little Bible story before you go to bed. <laughs> You're laying in bed like this, like, what just happened? What's in the Bible? I mean, it's, it's in there, right? But there's something in this story. I mean, it's a crazy story. Here's the, any lefties in the room? Where are you lefties? Where are the proud folk? You're, all right. You're a proud bunch. I love you lefties. Baseball, it's like a valued position to have a lefty, a solid lefty. So what's interesting, he goes in, sneaks in, pulls his sword from his right thigh, plunges it in the king's belly, loses his sword, and probably loses his watch. <laughs> and he escapes. Crazy. So that's Ehud. The second is Shamgar. And it's one verse. The story of Shamgar is one verse. Judges 3, verse 31, I've memorized it. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And he, too, saved Israel. And that's all we know. That's it. That's his story. There's a guy that saves Israel in one verse. And he's mentioned in Scripture. So why? 
Because if God has given scripture for us to inspire and encourage, to, to correct us, to help us, to convict us, to bring us to something to bear, why are these two men listed in the scriptures? And so I began to start to just sit with this, this book because what I wanted to begin to do is to say, as we take this, this series called Step, is to activate how we believe and what, we, what, we, what God's called us to do. And it's really easy to sit back and to gain information, gain information, but God never called us to gain information. He called us to steward this, this calling, this mission, which requires a step moving forward. And I look at these individuals, and if your notes, I want you to write a couple things down because I've got three points that I really want to make uh, solid with you. First is this, is that God empowers you through his framing and forming. God empowers you through his framing and forming, the framing of, of how he made you and the forming, the experiences that have shaped you, the framing and forming of your life. And then you may look at your life and say, oh, John, you must have a privileged life or whatever else. No, that's not the case. I've been through brokenness. I've been through heartache. I've been through some really painful experiences in my childhood and in my adult life that have framed and formed me to the person that I am today. And as I minister and as I reach people and as I connect to people, I draw from the strength and the pain of that, as does anybody else. And to take that framing and forming and bury it is something that, yeah, that's just my past life. And your past life is super important to who you are today. Super important. Ehud, what it says here in the story, Ehud's a left-handed man. And in this story, a left-handed man, someone who's left-handed, it's considered evil, dirty. It's a disabled, you're disabled. You, you can only use your left hand, you're an outcast. You're forced to change something that you can't. So being left-handed was this, Weird disadvantage. So we read the story and we're like, yeah, left-handed. Well, that's not how it was then. In fact, in Old Testament uh, or in, in depictions of medieval art, every time they showed the devil raising a sword or leading the people, he's leading with his left hand. It's considered a horrible thing to be left-handed. Sorry, you lefties. <laughs> and in life, we have similar beliefs, not necessarily left-handed, but somehow we're made with a disadvantage or we've gone through an experience that has created what we call a block because of how we are. And then we live spiritually passive because we believe that our past keeps us from being used by God. And that could not be further from the truth. God takes unlikely, unusual, broken people, people that think they don't have anything to offer and does insanely great things through them for his glory. It's a crazy story. And I think about Ehud. When you think about it, Here's how this played out. Ehud's a left-handed man, and it mentions twice. He's left-handed, and he strapped a sword on his right thigh. That's a key piece in this whole story. Because if you're right-handed in warfare technology, where most warriors would be, right-handed, you strap your sword where? On your left thigh. Your sword or your dagger, your blade, your whatever. And you would draw because you don't draw from the same side. That leaves you vulnerable when you're coming against your enemy. You draw across your body like this. And so he was left-handed, he would draw from his right. A right-handed man would draw from his left. And so as he would be called in to go see the king, there would be uh, security guards, people that would check to make sure, you know, you're not going to assassinate the king, just make sure, protect the king. And what they would do, would check left thigh. You got any blades in there? Got any, got any swords in there? They would check this thigh because make sure he didn't have anything. They wouldn't check the right thigh, because who would send a disabled, left-handed man to the king? 
Think about that. Only Ehud could have got in. I mean, that's a unique piece to this story. And it takes somebody that could have said, hey, I'm out. And God is saying, if you're sitting in here in this audience and you're saying, I'm out because this is what's happened to me or this is my circumstances, or, this is what I've got. That couldn't be further from the truth. Here's what I want you to write down just below that point of framing and forming. It's unique design. Unique design. Everyone has a unique design. Ephesians 2.10 tells us you're God's workmanship, meaning he created you the way you are. You're his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. There is a line of stuff within the time continuum that is designed for you because of the way he's made you. You realize that? I didn't make this up. It's Ephesians 2.10. God has designed you for something for his purpose. If you're weird, he needs weirdos. If something bad happened to you, great, because you need somebody to walk alongside people that when bad things happen to them, help them find their way. You have a past. Your past won't get in the way. Your past paves the way. You think you're too young? No, we need your energy. You think you're too old? No, we need your wisdom. You have a disability? It's perfect because it will require God to show up in a way that he won't for anybody else. The excuse that you may be using to disengage from doing something heroic for the kingdom of God is actually your ticket into the game. It's part of God's conspiracy to use you. What does that look like? It's the next person you meet. It's the barista at Starbucks that you say, you know, you're doing a great job. It's the person that, it's, it's why you're at the restaurant and you're enjoying the meal and you see the busboy cleaning up and you say, you know what, I appreciate what you do because if you didn't do your job, None of this would happen. Wow, thanks. It's coming alongside somebody and offering a, hand, a, a, a hug, a pat on the back, a blessing, a word of encouragement. If you feel prompted to pray, usually, most of the time, that means you're supposed to. Prompts come for a reason. You have a unique design. Second, write this down. God empowers you through His Spirit God empowers you through the Spirit. I love some of the songs that we're singing and the songs that we do sing in church because it talks about this calling of the Spirit and how we empowered through the Spirit. And again and again through the stories of the Bible, we see the Spirit of the Lord present and empowering His people again and again. In fact, in the book of Judges, before these two Judges here and then the ones after, Judges chapter 3, verse 10, it says, The, Lord, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, another judge. Judges chapter 6, it says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Judges chapter 11, it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Judges chapter um, 14, it says the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon Samson. The Spirit of the Lord, again and again throughout the theme, it's not just people being empowered because God made you a certain way. There is this, this, this spiritual Red Bull that's inside of you that says you're going for it. Even Jesus himself didn't act until he was empowered through the Spirit of God. In Luke chapter 4, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recover sight for the blind, and oppressed, uh, set the oppressed free. And even in the early church, nothing really happened with the disciples. They were kind of just bumping into each other until Acts chapter 2, and the Spirit of the Lord is poured out upon them. And all of a sudden, they're preaching and speaking and being persecuted and all, living this wholly different life, empowered in who they were. They were just a bunch of unlikely and unusuals, like us, empowered by the Spirit of God. Here's what I want you to write underneath that. Being empowered by the Spirit is, unleashes what I call unprecedented 
power. Unprecedented power. If the church began to recognize and realize that God is about empowering you to do the work of the ministry through His Spirit, we have an unstoppable force. The work that I get to do through Transform the Bay with Christ is that very equation. The Bay Area has 11 counties, 256 cities and towns, and almost 8 million people, three major metropolitan, San Francisco, San Jose, and Oakland. It's, I believe, the most influential place on the planet. And God is doing some significant work. But what happens is churches are siloed. Churches are, hey, we're, they're church-centric and they're global, but there's nothing in that middle earth that says, hey, if I connected this church and this church, all of a sudden we can be an unstoppable force for good, for the gospel, for, for compassion, for addressing the city's greatest issues. I hear people talking about all the issues within in San Francisco. The church becomes the biggest contributor to solving the solution, solving the issues. If the church can come together, it becomes an unstoppable force. And so my job is to go into different regions and bring pastors together, have meals. I have breakfast, lunch, dinner, coffee, even happy hour, bringing pastors together and saying, hey, what can we do? How can we come together? What can, what can happen? That's happening all around the Bay Area. God is moving in the Bay Area, I promise you. From a 30,000-foot view, something's happening. And the church becomes an unstoppable force when the Spirit of God is working in it. So that's the second thing. The third thing, I want you to write this down. God empowers you through His possessions entrusted to you. God empowers you through His possessions entrusted to you. Okay, I'm going to go back to the verse about Shamgar. Um, because I, I look at it, I love this part of the story, because it, it's our assumption and it was my assumption, even still, when I was challenged in my early in my faith, that you know, what, what do I bring to the table? And I realized, what do I have in my hand? And oftentimes we think I need to get a seminary education, I need to have resources, and I need all these things in order for me to be commissioned to go do whatever God's called me to do. And that's not how He works. He says, "What's in your hands?" And in Judges chapter three, verse thirty-one, I'll cite the verse again. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. You know what an ox goad is? I've been to third world countries, so I've seen oxen yoked together, pulling a, a, a cart or tilling a field. And there's usually a guy standing behind them with a stick about this long, pokey on the end. And he's poking them, prodding them in the backside. It's a, it's a pokey stick. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with a pokey stick. <laughs> he saved Israel with a stick. Think about that for a minute. The dude is listed in Scripture as saving Israel, and the resource he had was a stick. It was pokey on the end. I told this story to my kids, and they're out like in the backyard sharpening sticks. Like, oh, I'm going to save it, you know, poking each other. Like, don't kill each other. But the question is, what do you have? What has God given you specific that is unique to you? What talent or resource, time, talent, treasure, that he has uniquely given you that opens the door for you to do something for other people? It's this, what I call, and you can write this underneath this, ordinary and extraordinary resources. Ordinary 
and extraordinary resources. Ordinary is, say, tithes and offerings, what we commit to him and what he's given to us. But the extraordinary resources is other things that we have that might not be like somebody else, but everybody has it. Everybody has it. I talked to, I talked to some people at my church, and this one lady said, I, I actually have a vacation home in Tahoe. I said, oh, that's awesome. She said, I'd like to use it for families in grief because it's a beautiful, scenic place for respite and care and soul care and to really reconnect and grieve. And so she uses it. It's booked all the time for families in grief because that's the resource she had and that's the resource she brought to the table. I talked to another lady. There was a lady in our church. She went on a game show called uh, uh, The Price is Right. A lot of fans, Price is Right. More fans of Price is Right than the A's. That's interesting. Um, um, so she goes on, and she wins. She wins. I think the check was $17,000. I know, right? Awesome. I'm like, in my mind, when I think of that, I think, oh, man, let me just tell you what I, because you immediately go to you. What can I use that for? And it's stuff that I don't need. And so she calls me. She says, I just won $17,000. What? I just won 17th. Please stop saying what, what? You know what I mean? Like, and then she's telling me the story. And she says, I'd like to donate this for clean water projects in Africa that we're doing. And she's, we're, we're able to purchase all these wells with that money. Because it was an extraordinary, out of the ordinary kind of gift. It could be an extra car that your family has. It's a primary means of transportation for a single mom struggling to make ends meet. It could be anything that you have that's a resource to you that God can say, I will use this. The Bible says this. It's very unique. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. God takes these things where we're like, it doesn't make sense. God empowers you. He empowers you through his framing and through his forming. He empowers you through his spirit. He empowers you through his possessions entrusted to you. Those are the three main points from that story. But there's another piece. Because this is from God's side. There's a piece from your side now. As I sat with this story, I was really kind of working through and taking, looking at this. And it seems that it requires something on our part. When I go back to the story of Ehud for a moment, uh, there's a strange piece and interaction that happens in the story. In verse 18, if you look back in your notes, in verse 18, it says, After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent them on their way that had carried it. And it says he... Uh, on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, it says he himself turned back. He went back to Eglon. On reaching the stones at Gilgal, he turns back. I said with that, but it didn't make sense. Because he's on assignment. He's equipped. He's called by God. He's uniquely designed, framed, and formed. He's, in, he's moving forward to this thing. And here's what I think would happen. And I have a theory. I brought it to my Hebrew professor, and he went, huh, interesting. And here it is. What he didn't do, it says, he goes to the king, and what I think would happen, he goes on assignment, he goes to slay the king, deliver Israel, and he chickens out. He begins to think through his own strengths, and I, mean, I can do this, or whatever else, and he leaves. And he passes, and as he's walking out and passing by the stone images at Gilgal, he turns back. So I began to do some digging. What are the stone images at Gilgal? What does that mean? And the word for that is a kind of a root word, pasil and pasalim. And pasalim is, is, is a root word that stands for images, carved stones, or pile of rocks. 
The last time that we see any sort of mention of pile of rocks at Gilgal was when Joshua commissioned from Moses to Joshua, taking the children of Israel across the Jordan into the promised land. They're carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They step into the Jordan. The waters stop. God does something crazy. And they go in to conquer the land. And what Joshua does is he says, let's take 12 stones out of the middle of the river and stack them up at Gilgal to remind us who God is. And so I go back to the story. It says in Joshua chapter 4, it says, Joshua set up a Gilgal, 12 stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He did this so all the people of the earth will know, including Ehud, that the hand of the Lord is powerful so that you might always fear the Lord your God. And so there is this active step of faith. God may have designed you a certain way. God may have resourced you a certain way. You may be filled with the Spirit, but that requires you to take a step, a leap of faith. Do you guys remember the Indiana Jones movies, the trilogy? I don't count the fourth one. Uh, remember the last one? Uh, anybody remember that movie? Am I the only one who's seen Indiana Jones movies? Uh, the last one, the, the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. There's this one scene that, that has marked my memory because it doesn't, he comes up to this place, he's, he's trying to get the, the, um, uh, the cup of Christ, the Holy Grail, and bring it back. And it says, at this one place where it says, only the leap from the lion's head will he prove his worth. He has to take this step of faith. And here's a picture right here. He comes up to this one spot where he's just like, there's this chasm. And then across the way, he's like, take a leap of faith, a step of faith. He's like, this, and I remember him saying, this makes no sense. And then he sticks out his foot. There's this picture right here on the scene. Steps out his foot. And then he steps. He steps onto this pathway that takes him all the way. And it, it required him to just close his eyes and go, this makes no sense. And that step of faith for you and I as Christ followers that God has commissioned. Hebrews says, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who diligently seek him. It doesn't add up. There's no logic or explanation, but because our God is big enough, strong enough, smart enough, able enough, He's creator, he's sustainer, he's provider, he's protector. God will do this, and we're reminded, God will do this. I just need to step out in faith and do this. His spirit empowers us, enlightens us, and conspires with us. He calls us to stand up, not to sit down. He calls us to be awake, not to be asleep, to abandon our, fear, to abandon our fears, not abandon our faith, to listen to those who have no hope, and to speak for those who have no voice, to shout for those who have no rights, to repair things in your city that are broken, to redeem th things that need to be brought back and stand alongside those who are alone and lost and to bring them home. You're the light of the world, the Bible calls us. He says, let your light so shine before men that they see your acts of service. They see the way you treat your next door neighbor. They see the way you interact with your coworker. They see the way you respond to the person that you just met. And as you live that out and you take a step and say, you know what, I'm going to actually buy that person's, this, I'm going to buy that Starbucks drink for them. Or I'm going, to, I'm going to invite them over. Or I'm going to interact in a way that feels out of my comfort zone. That's that step. All of a sudden, God does something that glorifies your Father in heaven. Cornerstone, this church was never meant to be a place that's a safe gathering for good Christians of San Francisco. It never was meant for that. Cornerstone is this refueling station for a people of a conspiring God, for a people on mission who by faith want to change the world. That's what this place is.
So the question is, will you take that leap of faith? Will you take that step forward? Ephesians chapter 3 says this, and I'll close. It says, when I think of all this, I fall to my knees, and I pray to the Father, pray to the Father, the creator of everything on heaven and earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we could ever ask or think. I'm not making it up. He's designed it for you. You just have to step in it. So that's what I want to call to you. So let me pray, and we'll have a time of giving, and we'll have a time of worship. But let me pray for you, and I want to pray this blessing over to you. I would ask that you just put your hands out, and I want you to receive this. Father, I thank you for my friends at Cornerstone, for those that have been here so many years, those that are pretty new to the church, and those that are visiting today. I pray a blessing over them. I pray you empower them, you strengthen them, that you cause them to search within themselves and say, how have you framed and formed me? And that they would lean into the Spirit of God and that it would empower them to do things above what we would ask or think. And from that, they would take the resources that they have, the things that you've empowered them and given them, and they would take a step of faith and journey towards your mission, your purpose, and your kingdom. I pray a blessing on them, empower them, strengthen them, give them, give them, give them courage and dependency. In Christ's name, amen.